Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Hajun Chang, the renowned economist's new book, Edible Economics, brings some fresh ideas to the table regarding how money works, all inspired by food. Why are so many out-of-date ideas still popping up on the menu? Our host for today's conversation is Victoria Scholar, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Here's Victoria with more. I'm delighted to introduce our guest tonight, Hajun Chang. He's a professor of development economics at SOAS and a fellow of the Centre for Economic and Policy Research. He's the author of several books, including Kicking Away the Ladder, Development Strategy in Historical Perspective, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, and most recently, Edible Economics, A Hungry Economist Explains the World, which we're here to discuss. So without further ado, let's begin. Hajun, thank you so much for being with us tonight. It's a real pleasure to be speaking to you. Of course, you are an incredibly well-respected economist, so thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for having the, me. <laughs> we're going to get into the book, but um, before we do so, I just thought we'd get current for a moment because there's so much going on with the global economy right now. And we've just heard from the International Monetary Fund this week that's forecasting that the UK economy will contract this year, performing worse than all other advanced economies, including Russia. Now, we know that economic forecasting can be very difficult. So firstly, do you agree with this prediction? And secondly, why is it that the UK is underperforming so much, particularly given that the IMF didn't mention Brexit as a factor? Mm. Yeah, uh, let me put it this way. I mean, I cannot see any reason to fundamentally disagree with it. As you said, I mean, uh, economic forecasting is always difficult. And yeah, and uh, by the, uh, a skin of teeth, Britain might defy that uh, prediction. But I think uh, the problem with uh, the Britain is that it has underinvested in its economy for the last uh, 25, 30 years. You know, in the last uh, 25 years, Britain has uh, invested about 17% of its uh, output. You know, that uh, you need uh, these investments uh, that to update your infrastructure, that install new technologies, you know, bring about that, that uh, innovation. Comparatively speaking, this is a really poor performance because that, that, uh, the US has invested in the last uh, 25 years, 21% of its GDP. Germany has invested 22%, France 23%, Switzerland uh, 26%. So actually that, that is, uh, 
quite remarkable that uh, Britain has uh, been uh, performing what at the level that uh, it has been, despite this uh, very low investment, but uh, finally it's uh, showing, you know. The infrastructure is uh, dilapidated. You haven't made uh, enough uh, investment in new machines, uh, new technologies, and uh, the, the productivity is uh, stagnating and uh, the economy uh, doesn't have, uh, if you like, uh, the engine of growth anymore. So I'm afraid it's uh, the, a long-term kind of thing. And uh, that's uh, probably why the, the IMF uh, didn't even mention things like uh, Brexit, uh, because it's uh, structural. It's not just because of one uh, bad decision or one uh, mismanagement uh, of, uh, say, COVID-19 crisis. All right, let's get into your new book then, Edible Economics, published in October. A fascinating read that intertwines your two passions, economics and food, which offer some big parallels and also some rather stark uh, contrasts. So tell us a bit about why you decided to write this book. Well, my belief is that in a capitalist economy, especially the version of uh, capitalism that we have uh, these days uh, where market rules are supreme in anything. Democracies are meaningless unless everyone knows some economics, you know, because now everything has to justify its existence in terms of its economic contribution, you know, whether it's, I don't know, teaching about the ancient languages in universities or whether it's preserving the cultural heritage. You know, I even met some people who tried to justify the British monarchy in terms of the tourist revenue that it uh, allegedly brings. You know, I'm not a monarchist, but uh, what a demeaning way of uh, justifying an institution that you think is at the foundation of your society. You know, it has come to that. You know? So that in that, that kind of society, unless everyone knows uh, the economics, uh, that uh, democracy is meaningless. And therefore, in the last uh, couple of decades, I have uh, taken it upon myself uh, to promote uh, what I call mass economic uh, literacy. And this is my latest attempt uh, to draw in even more people than I have been able to draw in uh, into the thinking about economics because almost everyone is uh, interested in food. Uh, so I uh, thought that it uh, was a good way of uh, luring people into that, uh, that reading about and thinking about economics. <laughs> well, you certainly had me hooked with food. So in the book, you talk about your move to the UK from South Korea in the late 80s to study economics at Cambridge, and you went on to become a faculty member. And you made me laugh. You said that despite the cold weather and the language barrier and the other challenges, it was food that was the real trauma. But since then, we've actually seen that Britain has really expanded um, yeah. in terms of its food scene. Mm -mm. There's been a culinary explosion from all around the world. Right, yeah. But actually, the flip yeah. side has happened in economics, and that diversity exactly, of economic yeah. thought has vastly yeah. decreased, and it all focuses That's now. Right around neoclassical economics. So yeah. I'm wondering why we're left with such a slimmed down pool of economic ideas now. Yeah, I mean, the, the, when I first uh, arrived in this uh, country in the 80s, I mean, the food scene was uh, just uh, horrible. You know, For me, at least, the state of British food uh, culture at the time uh, is uh, epitomized uh, by this uh, pizza chain called the uh, Pizza Land which uh, gave its uh, customers an option to have uh, their pizza uh, topped with a baked potato, you know, because uh, it was worried about that, that uh, its uh, customers being traumatized uh, by this uh, foreign food. Uh, so it was uh, throwing this uh, security blanket, you know, to hold on to your potatoes if you can handle this uh, strange food. But 
You know, today the food scene in these countries are completely different. I mean, arguably it's the best place to eat. Well, of course, if you have enough money. <laughs> because my theory is that sometime in the late 1990s, British people had this collective epiphany in which they realized that their own food sucks. You know? But once you did that, that, that they gained a huge uh, horizon because uh, if you reject uh, your own food, you know, that uh, why should you prefer Italian over Korean or the Turkish over Indian, you know, that anything tastes is fine. So that now it has uh, one of the most uh, diverse and exciting food culture. But as you mentioned, the opposite has been happening uh, to my other world, uh, that is world of economics in which uh, the, all these uh, the different contending schools uh, the, which used to coexist and debate and uh, inform each other, the, you know, steal ideas uh, from each other. You know, the, some economists even the, try to create a fusion of different theories. I mean, the, the economic scene was uh, like that until the, the 70s, but uh, now it uh, resembles more the, the pre-1990s uh, British uh, food scene uh, in which uh, the, there's only one bland offering, you know, the, called neoclassical economics. Now, neoclassical economics has uh, the, some great uh, things about it. You know, I'm not uh, the, trying to denounce it, but uh, basically the problem is that the world is very complex. No single theory can explain everything because uh, they were designed for different purposes. They use uh, different uh, theoretical concepts. They use uh, different tools. They have uh, different political and ethical values. So in order to uh, fully understand uh, the complexity of our economy and uh, more broadly society, you need uh, uh, different theories. Unfortunately, when you have only one theory, it uh, makes you understand so much uh, poorer. There are a lot of uh, different reasons why this uh, particular school of economics has uh, become so dominant, but uh, one very important reason is that uh, this school uh, starts its analysis after accepting the existing distribution of uh, income, wealth, and power, and then try to find out whether you could uh, make uh, social improvements without uh, undermining that order. So it uh, has that, uh, unfortunately, that uh, become like uh, the uh, Catholic uh, theology in medieval Europe. It has uh, become ideology that justifies uh, whatever is uh, that, uh, going on in the world, however uh, the unjust, uh, wasteful, and uh, the brutal it may be. So, you know, that, that is uh, very that, uh, sweet that, uh, for the years of uh, people who benefit uh, from the, the existing uh, social order. So it has uh, become very, very prevalent uh, to the point of actually making our intellectual diet uh, very poor. Yeah, so so let's dig into some of the chapters of your book now, because mm. each chapter is entitled A Food or a Drink, and it links to an economic theory or an idea. So I'm going to jump around mm. a bit, but I thought I'd start with what's possibly my favourite chapter, which is chapter 13, which is called Chile. Um, and you mm -hmm. use Chile to talk about certain parts of economic output that are taken for granted, a bit like how Chile is undervalued in terms of its importance in some dishes. And the key economic example you give for this is unpaid care work done at home and that GDP is flawed because it only counts things that command a price in the market. So a parent, yeah. for example, looking after a child at home 
doesn't count towards GDP. So it's economically invisible. But you say that this potentially needs to change. um, And this could help things like fighting the gender pay gap or uh, fighting racial discrimination. And there has been a lot of conversation lately about Mm -hmm. the limitations of GDP. You know, New Zealand, for example, is a leading example of a nation that's ditched GDP to focus on a happiness or well-being index instead. I want to get your view on how you think we should best measure living standards and also whether you think governments would actually change and adopt these new frameworks for looking at Mm. living standards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the problem with uh, GDP, uh, you know, once again, I'm not saying that GDP is a particularly bad uh, indicator. You know, the, like all indicators, it highlights some aspects of reality and uh, ignores uh, the, some others. But uh, you know, the most uh, serious uh, problem with uh, GDP is uh, basically it only captures uh, marketized things. Yeah, so that uh, you you don't count that the uh, care work uh, and the, that is done in the household and communities. Yeah. Despite the fact that uh, these are fundamental to the survival of our societies. So that not counting those things that actually give you kind of a wrong indication of how well we are doing as a society, how well the economies are serving the needs of the population, and uh, how happy we are. And, uh, in the end, I mean, uh, the material goods uh, and uh, services are only means to our happiness. Yeah? But that uh, we are measuring the wrong things that are in that way. Now, we are actually seeing a lot about uh, the revolt around this. I mean, uh, okay, I mean, uh, the problems with uh, GDP have been kind of discussed uh, at least uh, since the 1970s. So there's nothing knew about that, but uh, in the beginning, it was uh, more confined to academic discussion out the uh, countries. Uh, you just uh, mentioned New Zealand. Another interesting uh, example is uh, that this uh, small country in the Himalayas uh, called Bhutan, which uh, the, the, the has uh, officially adopted this uh, notion of uh, the gross national happiness. Yeah? So that the instead of products, uh, let's uh, measure happiness. and. Yeah, I think that uh, at the lower levels of uh, development, there, there's uh, quite a strong correlation between your material uh, products and uh, your well-being. But I mean, after a certain level, certainly not at the level where countries like Britain or the, the Korea are, at that level, that uh, there's no evidence that uh, the, our happiness is uh, correlated with the uh, material that, uh, comfort. Uh, so we need to uh, think about the ways in which uh, that, uh, we can uh, correctly measure human well-being. Now, I do not believe that there'll be one magic indicator that can actually solve this problem. And that is actually for the better because the fact that uh, there is no single indicator means that, uh, that there are different aspects uh, to our life uh, that we need to think about. That, that, that you cannot uh, that just uh, line up countries according to you know, some single very uh, brute uh, indicator and uh, say this country is doing better than another. And yeah, so that we that, uh, need to, first of all, that, uh, you know, realize that uh, if we only measure marketized things, that uh, we are not uh, measuring uh, our entire welfare. And secondly, that uh, we need to that, uh, develop indicators uh, that can uh, reflect uh, our uh, well-being uh, more uh, accurately, you know, the, for example, the happiness uh, the surveys, you know, asking people how happy they are. I mean, of course, uh, this 
has a problem with the kind of objectivity, but that uh, is uh, one indicator that we could use. Another is a uh, more kind of indirect, uh, but in a way, the more important uh, indicators of our well-being, like uh, life expectancy, you know, the, the indicators of uh, our health, you know, education achievement. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, my, my view is that uh, we need that uh, more multi-dimensional approach at uh, why, why should we that, uh, measure everything by just uh, one indicator? The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah, and that, that seems to be a theme that's cropped up a lot in your book, that it's not about one economic model that fits all or one indicator that can right. um, correctly capture everything that's going on and different economies need different models and different indicators. Mm. Um, but one complex economic problem, if not the most pressing economic problem that we face at the moment is, of course, climate change, which you talk about in Chapter 14, which is called Lime. And interestingly, you taught me how... 
lime was essentially used to help cure scurvy for sailors on long distance voyages. And actually vitamin C, which is called ascorbic acid, is named anti-scurvy acid. So it taught me a lot in this book and I really enjoyed that little (laughs) bit of information. But um, yeah, you link this chapter to climate change essentially Mm -mm. to talk about how this can't be solved exclusively by the market. It needs public interventions, um, whether that's That's subsidies uh, for uh, insulation in houses Mm -hmm. or food regulation. Um, So tell us a bit more about why individual change needs that large-scale public action to support Mm -mm. it. Yeah, no, the climate change, uh, first of all, is uh, an existential threat. Yeah? I mean, I actually uh, believe in the human ingenuity. So the, I think uh, given enough time, but we will uh, come up with uh, the technologies that uh, will make a high living standard uh, compatible with uh, the planetary the, the capacity. But the trouble is that uh, we don't know whether that's uh, going to happen uh, soon enough. Yeah? Because that uh, we have uh, without initially without realizing it, and then uh, later even without uh, with uh, realizing it, we have uh, pumped in uh, so much uh, greenhouse gas in the atmosphere that uh, we are uh, reaching the, the point of uh, the no return. Uh, so you know, you know if uh, someone can come up with a practicable nuclear fusion technology in the next uh, twenty years, that uh, probably we are fine. But you know, there's no guarantee that uh, it will happen. Probably it will uh, not happen in time. So we, we need to take this uh, very, very seriously. But uh, secondly, what makes uh, climate change uh, very difficult uh, to deal with is uh, it uh, touches upon everything. It's uh, not just about uh, using or not using uh, fossil fuel in uh, generating electricity. Yeah? It's about uh, how your living space is organized. You know, that, for example, in the United States, uh, a lot of people have to drive uh, 70 miles, 80 miles uh, to go to work. Mm-hmm. Europeans uh, find it easier to feel virtuous because uh, they cycle 11 miles uh, every day that, uh, that for commute. But if uh, that 11 miles uh, is 110 miles, uh, they cannot do it. Yeah? So that uh, some countries need to uh, reorganize living space. You know, it's not just uh, the energy that uh, requires uh, fossil fuel in order to produce uh, steel, cement, uh, fertilizer. You know, all the, these uh, basic ingredients of modern life. But uh, you need uh, fossil fuel, so you need to change uh, technologies for that. We need to think about that. Uh, you know, the, the, our food systems uh, because that. that uh, basically, that uh, we like uh, the meat, uh, especially beef, too much. You know, the Canadian uh, environmental scientist that uh, Vaslav uh, Smil that uh, called uh, the Earth uh, the planet of the cows. Yeah, because uh, it's uh, become basically the biggest uh, zoo mass, uh, that, uh, even bigger than the humans uh, that, uh, on the planet. Yeah, we also uh, need to uh, uh, change the way that we organize our mobility. You know. So that when that you need that so many interconnected uh, decisions, leaving it uh, to the market uh, can be a huge problem because uh, there are sometimes uh, not even markets uh, for necessary things. Uh, even if uh, there are markets, these markets are not uh, able to take account all the kind of indirect impacts uh, that, uh, that your decision is having on the rest of uh, the, the society. The economists call this uh, externalities. Yeah? So that uh, we need that uh, in the, for solving this kind of problem, we need uh, public intervention. You know, the, even within this uh, framework of uh, the strong uh, public interaction, 
I mean, uh, for some things, uh, market will uh, provide the most uh, effective way of uh, that, uh, kind of uh, delivering the results, you know. But yeah, overall, the framework has to be created uh, through that uh, public intervention intent on dealing with this uh, that, uh, long-term and very complex uh, problem. You know? Because markets uh, basically react uh, to the immediate signals. You know? And uh, it's uh, the mo most importantly, one dollar, one vote. So even while the people are dying of uh, the mega flood in the Pakistan, you know, the money goes uh, to the, these uh, billionaires uh, who have a private space race, yeah? because that, that's what market is. Yeah? So the, we need that, uh, to restrain that uh, part of uh, the market. Yeah? Market is a great uh, the mechanism to keep uh, people incentive uh, to do certain things, but uh, the market has to be designed in order to give them the right incentive, because uh, if you just uh, leave it uh, 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 entirely on its own, then uh, uh, basically they'll uh, uh, tell the world uh, that we need uh, more money to uh, send people uh, to space and Mars and so on, then that uh, investing in the, the, the flood uh, prevention in Pakistan. Yeah, again, you know, we, we, we could talk about climate change probably for the whole hour, but it kind of yeah. underscores, um, again, the theme in your book that we live in a highly uh, complex world and also highlighting some of the limitations of the markets. Now, the next chapter I wanted to talk to you about is chapter 10, Coca-Cola. Now, it's pretty much impossible to uh, talk about economics without bringing in some kind of politics. And Coca-Cola, as you explain, is actually the second most widely understood word in the world after OK, which I thought was fascinating. And it's come to symbolize American capitalism for good or for bad. Um, but you use this chapter to talk about the shift left in Latin American politics. And interestingly, your book came out before Lula da Silva of the left beat Jair Bolsonaro in the latest That's Brazilian right. election. Yeah. So you pretty much forecasted that. So well done to you. I wanted to ask you about why we've been seeing this leftward shift in Latin American politics and talk a bit about the more active role for the state in these countries, why it has that. Yeah, yeah. And Latin America has uh, been a continent of uh huge extremes, you know? I mean, not, I'm not just uh, talking about uh, income inequality, but the continent has uh, such a vast uh, amount of uh, the resources, you know, the, the Amazon forest and, you know, lithium in Chile, the copper, you know, the, the, you name it. So the, it's uh, been a very ground for very uh, diverse uh, experiments uh, because it's uh, got so many possibilities. Unfortunately, the, these uh, societies uh, had been organized uh, that, uh, in such a way that uh, the inequality is, uh, you know, except for Southern Africa, you know, South Africa, the, uh, Angola and these countries, except for Southern Africa is the least uh, equal the, the region in the world. And it's uh, ridden with uh, the conflicts, you know, the, in talking about Coca-Cola, I mentioned that uh, the former president of uh, Bolivia, the Evo Morales, who came to power on the wave of protest and disillusionment uh, against uh, the standard international monetary fund, World Bank at the structure adjustment program, used to be a coca farmer and, <laughs> you know, a lot of things were done in the Bolivia and other Latin American countries that would uh, the make, uh, you know, the people in other countries blanch, you know, for example, one of the 
scandals in Bolivia, which I actually don't talk about in the, this book, uh, although I talk about it elsewhere. No, there, there was uh, this uh, the city called Cochabamba, which uh, had sold uh, the, its uh, water company to this American corporation, uh, Bechtel. And uh, Bechtel uh, immediately raised the uh, price by five times or whatever. And the uh, people, the poor people started the, the, the collecting rainwater to the use it because they couldn't afford the pipe water. And then Bechtel the, the sued these people and the, the tried to ban the, the collection of rainwater. Yeah? So the, when something like that happens, you know, the, you know that the system is broken. So the, the, we've had the, the, since the mid 1990s when many of the Latin American countries are forced to adopt this uh, extreme form of uh, market capitalism uh, under pressure from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Uh, they have been waves of protest and disillusionment that, uh, against uh, the standard uh, economic uh, recipe. And yeah, I mean, the, we had the, the, the first uh, the so-called uh, pink tide, you know, in the Venezuela, Brazil, Uruguay, Ecuador, and then it uh, receded a bit, and then it's uh, come back again. You know, the Chile that uh, elected a uh, 35-year-old uh, left-wing uh, former student activist, uh, Gabriel Boric, uh, who, I mean, uh, declared that uh, Chile was uh, the cradle of uh, neoliberalism, which it was under the dictatorship of uh, General Pinochet. But that uh, he declared that uh, it will uh, uh, now be the grave of uh, neoliberalism. Yeah? So the Chile and then Argentina, you know, now that uh, Colombia, which uh, uh, has elected uh, its uh, first ever left-wing president in history, and then the Lula coming back. So the, now we the, see the second pink tide. The, so the, clearly the, the, the standard the economic model of the, you know, the opening up the economy, deregulating, privatizing state-owned enterprises uh, is not working. Yeah? And that the, these countries are the, basically the saying that it's not working, let's uh, try something different. Yeah, I mean, they don't uh, the always uh, do the right things, but uh, the, you know, the fact that there's such the wave of protest and uh, political the conflict in the continent is a very good uh, indication that uh, the standard uh, economic model is not working. Now, there are also some really funny anecdotes in this book about your life, so thank you for those. Chapter 3, The Coconut, talks about your first experience with the fruit, sipping pina coladas in Cancun in the mm. late 1990s. <laughs> and this made me laugh, this chapter. I mean, you talk about the Robinson Crusoe economic model, which is basically uh -oh. a very simple economic model that talks about one single commodity, the coconut. But you make the good point that there isn't a single mention of a coconut in Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs> which is quite ironic. Um, I loved what you talked about in this chapter. You talk about some of the false, rather unfair assumptions made about worker productivity in poorer countries in the mm -hmm. tropics. So explain to us about why some of these assumptions, well, what these assumptions are and why, why mm -hmm. they're false. Yeah, so, the, you know, the coconut uh, is such a kind of the bountiful fruit that it has uh, basically become the symbol of uh, tropical bounties. Yeah? But at the same time, uh, it has uh, become a tool uh, to kind of explain why poor countries are poor. I mean, the argument is, uh, you know, that sometimes this is uh, called the resource curse. You know, these countries are 
actually too richly endowed with uh, natural resources, uh, which make uh, people lazy. And uh, this is what's uh, making these countries uh, poor. So, you know, given the offensive nature of uh, the example, uh, no one uh, really has uh, clearly written it down anywhere. But, uh, you know, that in private, a lot of people will say, oh, these people in the tropical countries, uh, you know, they uh, are lazy because they don't have to work hard. You know, it's not that cold, so you don't need to study housing or a lot of clothes, you know. Uh, food is everywhere, you know, the coconut, mango, you know, bananas. Uh, so that these people lie beneath a coconut tree and uh, wait for the coconut to fall. And uh, that's uh, what what is uh, making uh, these countries poor. Now, first of all, I mean, uh, no sane person will lie beneath a coconut tree because, uh, the, you know, the, if a coconut falls in your head, that uh, you will die. You know? So actually, uh, no, coconut kills uh, quite a few people, so much so that uh, now uh, on the internet there's this urban legend that coconut uh, kills more people than sharks. Hmm? But uh, the, yeah, as far as I can figure out, that uh, it's uh, not true. But uh, anyway, I mean, that, that, so that this is uh, the usual uh, story, you know, that these people don't work hard, you know, they lack in work ethic. But actually, if you look at the objective uh, statistics, I mean, the people in poorer countries work much longer than people in the rich countries, you know. I mean, they work for the much bigger part of their lives, you know, because uh, in very poor countries, uh, child labor is uh, prevalent, you know. We're not talking about kids uh, doing paper rounds and uh, taking care of uh, their younger siblings. I mean, we are talking about that uh, children doing adults' work in some countries child labor rate can be close to 50%, yeah? And a lot of uh, the poor people in the, the poor countries uh, have to work basically until they are too decrepit uh, to work because uh, there's no pension, you know. Uh, the, they basically need to do something uh, to uh, sustain themselves. Uh, so actually, all these uh, the examples show that the problem with these countries is uh, not uh, the amount of work uh, that people do, but uh, the productivity of this work. And uh, most of this uh, productivity is actually determined by the social system and uh, the the kind of uh, physical capital in terms of machine and infrastructure that uh, these countries have, rather than the individual's uh, qualities. I mean, just think about when people migrate uh, from poorer countries to rich countries, they suddenly become very productive because uh, now they are working at uh, much better technologies, you know, the much uh, the better run organizations in a society with uh, the better institutions, uh, better governance and so on. So that, uh, actually that, that we cannot uh, blame poor people in poor countries uh, for their poverty. Yeah? It's uh, the fault of uh, the elite of those countries as well as uh, the rich countries that uh, had uh, colonized and enslaved uh, these people uh, for centuries before, and that uh, recently doing uh, kind of uh, things that uh, make uh, their development uh, difficult by uh, making uh, global rules of uh, investment and uh, trade uh, unfair uh, to the uh, developing countries and you know, the imposing a lot of uh, policies uh, that we talked about this at uh, the structural adjustment uh, programs, uh, a lot of policies that are not really suited uh, to the developing countries. Uh, so we actually that uh, blaming the wrong people. Mm? 
but uh, unfortunately, that's uh, the stereotype uh, the image that we have. You know, that they have too many coconuts. Yeah? I just love the way you you hooked us all in with pina coladas there and got us to think uh-huh. about work and productivity. Very, very clever. Yeah, my favorite drink. Yeah. <laughs> Hajun, thank you so so much for a wonderful conversation. It's been great chatting to you. And just to remind you, the book Edible Economics is available to buy from your local bookshop. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. I'm Victoria Scholar and this is Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our upcoming events or peruse our back catalogue, then head to intelligencesquared.com. This episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. Thanks for listening.